0: Hey, welcome to Project Yellow. This is Daniel, the host. Project Yellow is where we interview professionals to gain insight and knowledge about different industries, jobs, and how to succeed in them. In this first series, we will be talking about tech opportunities beyond computer science major. And to kick off this series, I will be talking with my mentor, Max Yoder. Max is a former CEO and co-founder of Lessonly. Less than least, a powerful learning software company here in Indianapolis and it is now acquired by Seismic. I'm very excited about this episode because, you know, Max talked about what self-compassion is, why it is important, and how we can practice it early in our life. Let's begin. Thank you so much, Max, uh, for uh, for showing. First, let's talk about your career uh background so can you tell us about your background in tech and experience building companies
1: yeah well daniel it's always a pleasure to be with you i wouldn't miss this man um so my name is max yoder as you mentioned and uh i've been working in software and tech companies for i'd say about 12 maybe 13 years i got my first internship between my junior and senior year of college um and i worked at a design and strategy firm called studio science and uh Basically, what they did at Studio Science was if somebody brought a business idea that they wanted to uh, take to the next level, maybe they have a business idea, but uh, they, they don't know how to build, build the first uh, version of their software, um, they might come to Studio Science. Maybe they have a business idea, but they need uh, the company to be named and to get a look and feel and to help figure out who that company is going to sell to, um, Studio Science could help them. So I got this all this experience with all these different people coming into Studio Science. And as an intern, I just got to watch them solve business problems. And what I, what I realized while I was doing it is that people who start businesses um, are not doing magic tricks. And, and what do I mean by that? It kind of looked like magic to me. Before I saw it done You know, in person, it looked like magic to build software. Or it looked like magic to launch a business. It felt like it took a special um, something that I maybe did not have. But then as I watched more and more people do it, I realized it's not it's not magic. It's more of a process. And if you follow a process, um, it doesn't mean that your business is going to work or not, because that takes a lot of luck, and it takes a lot of timing, and it takes a you know different strategies work and different ones don't. But if you follow the process, your likelihood of at least getting a business to launch uh, goes up. Um. So really, just built. I really built confidence in my earliest days in my first internship of being like, hey, if I want to do that too, I can do it too. So when I graduated from college, I got I got a job with a software company called Compendium. And it was very helpful for me to be working in a business before I started a business, be working in a tech startup before I started a tech startup. Um, and the the more I worked within one, um, the more I saw, again, it is a process and I just learned, you know, what works and what doesn't, which I think is the coolest thing about, about a job, especially right after college is I started to get paid to learn, you know, I started to get paid to soak up uh, new information and and new experiences. And after about a, a year and a half. Uh, at that first company out of college, Compendium, I started my own business, and uh, that business was a polling and surveying company called Quipple. So, what it was all about was helping people make um, surveys and and polls, P O L L S, that would ask people whether they liked something or disliked something. It was very simple. It was built. I was building it in 2011, and you can't imagine how much different the internet was in 2011 than it is here in 2022. Um, and the company Quipple uh, did not do very well, and it didn't do very well because I did not do a lot of, um, I didn't do a lot of interviewing of potential customers. I kind of had an idea, and I was like, "This idea, I think I know how this idea should be built." And I found teammates and partners to help me build it, and I built it how I thought it should be built, and it turned out I was making a lot of guesses about how it should work because I wasn't talking to the people who. Ultimately, I wanted to buy Quipple and use it, at, you know, as, as users, as 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 consumers of the product. So I made a lot of guesses, and I built those guesses in into software. And by the time we launched the software, it was like nine months after, you know, we had started, and it turned out Quipple uh, was not what people wanted. So I was, you know, I was a bummer for me. Like Daniel, I launched the software and. The first day I launched it, people were asking me questions about Quipple that I didn't have good answers for. They're like, why doesn't it do this? And why doesn't it do this? And why doesn't it do this? And I just didn't have good answers for them because I had not been very thoughtful in going out and talking to those people before I built anything. So my number one or maybe number two or three piece of advice to somebody who wants to build a company is, you know, talk to your customers first. Get out there and sell it before you build something. Um, and by sell it, I mean, you know, try try to see who wants it. Try to see how much they'll pay for it. Trying to see what features it's going to need for them to sign up um, because those conversations are incredibly uh, valuable and they can you know save somebody else the trouble of building something that, that nobody wants it's not fun to build something that nobody wants you know it's fun to build something that that, that works um so i built something that nobody wanted which was, was which was a good first experience for me um but it was painful at the time you know and it, and by by going through that experience i had uh learned some lessons the hard way of how to build my next company so i shut Quibble down. Uh, and I started uh, the next business again with with friends and mentors called Lessonly. Uh, and and Lessonly did it much better. That, that This time we uh, we did a lot more question asking before we built any software. Um, we brought the customers along for the journey and they kind of helped inform us what we should build and not build. Does not mean that I was taking orders from the customers, right? If a customer said something that I didn't think um, made sense, it doesn't mean I necessarily built it, right? I was using my own judgment, but I was mixing my own judgment in. And my own vision and our, in my friends, in the people that I've built the company with, our vision with the information we were getting. So it wasn't like I was, you know, taking orders from the customer. It was more like I was talking to them, mixing what they thought we should do and what, what we thought we should do. And then, you know, coming up with with better ideas as a result. And the lesson we experienced was just, uh, it couldn't have been um, more life-giving. We ran the company for nine years. Uh, we built it to a 280 employees full-time with about uh, thirty people who are part-time. So, you know, really big team, in my opinion. I've I never imagined we would have that many people. And what, what the software did, which I should have told you right away, it's training software. Uh, so the the idea was we'll have software that companies can buy and they can use our software to build lessons, step by step lessons that teach people how to do to do their jobs. So maybe you started a company and they they're using Lessonly. You'll get a bunch of assignments on your first day of work. Uh, that uh, teach you what the company does, why it does what it does, you know, who it sells to, but they'll also teach you specific things about maybe my job. Maybe I'm starting as a sales development representative, an SDR, and my job is to find uh, potential new people to buy our software. Um, knowing Knowing what works as an SDR is very valuable to me. So lessons from people who have been in SDRs before. Will show up for me that I can take, so that I can learn from other people who have already done, you know, the job I'm about about to do. So, uh, what we help people do is understand what it looks like to do their job well, so that you know they have a higher chance of succeeding. Um, and we also help them practice what, whatever they're learning. So, you know, reading something is is helpful, but practicing something is very helpful. I, I'm sure you and I have both read things that were like, "Oh, that's very cool, and that would help me a lot in my life." But then, if we don't do something with that information, if we don't apply it and practice it it doesn't matter so much, right? I could have, I can know everything there is to know, but if I don't do those things, you know, not making much of a dent. Um, so we have learning, which is just reading and kind of taking information in, and then we have practicing it lessonly. And those two things are just very powerful. And they allowed us to have, you know, to, to build our business to more than a thousand customers. Um, and again, uh, you know, a, a big team. Uh, and we were ultimately acquired by uh, a great company and a great partner of ours called Seismic. And that happened in 2021, um, and we found out that when, when people bought Lessonly, they also bought Seismic. So we came together and said, "Hey, let's we should be one company." Um, and that's worked out very well uh, because you know people are buying our software at the same time, and now Seismic you know, is able to um, sell both Lessonly and and their core uh, offerings to their customers. So it was a good run; it was a really good run. And uh, yeah, that's my background in tech, kind of in a nutshell. Is that I, I I was the CEO of Lessonly from. 2012 to 2021 when we sold it to seismic i stayed with seismic for a year and uh now i'm just you know spending my time talking about tech but also just mostly being a dad and um, trying to rest more thank
0: you so much max so <clears throat> i can see that you know you you really love self-compassions and it is very important for you so can we talk about um self-compassions
1: please man i'd love to there's nothing i like talking about more than self-compassion so let's do it
0: all right first question is uh can you explain what self-compassion is and why it is important to you and how it helped you in your per- personal and professional
1: life yeah i think it's important to, when we define self-compassion to show what it is versus what like the normal is because self-compassion i think is something that um it's hard to do naturally naturally i think what we do is we're we're self-critical and self-criticism and self-compassion are kind of uh two different ends of a spectrum uh and the self self-crit- the self-criticism is I think people many people are very familiar with self-criticism. It's when I have a voice in my head that is highly critical of me. Uh, so when I make a mistake, it's like hey, that was so dumb, you shouldn't have done that, um, and uh, that causes me to you know um, be a little more nervous about the next thing that I try because I I'm just I'm I'm criticizing myself a lot. So for most of my life, I was not very self-compassionate. I was really self-critical, and I thought self-criticism was the way that I would um, be most motivated. So, what do I mean by that? I was—I thought if I had to, crit, I criticizing myself was helping me. I thought it was the only way for me to not kind of be lazy or be too, um, yeah, to not want to. I, I thought it was the way I was going to keep making progress. But then I learned about self compassion because I realized self criticism was hurting me more than it was helping. I was making progress, quote unquote, by being self critical, but I was also doing tremendous damage to my own personal uh, health because when I'm, I mean. Have you ever worked or or been with somebody who's very very critical of you? Did you feel motivated and inspired when people are very critical of you? Uh, a little, for sure, but it hurts. Yeah, it hurts exactly. So you might feel motivated and you might feel like inspired to do better. But uh, let me ask you a different question: When somebody is very encouraging of you and and they're caring with you and they say things like, "Hey Daniel, I'd like this to change," um, mm-hmm. and you know, I I think you can do it, and and I believe in you to go do it. Is that more or less inspiring than, than somebody who's highly critical of you? Yeah, totally. I completely agree. And this is and I think generally people would agree with that, right? But for some reason, even when we know that when we're kind of encouraged and nurtured and supported, we know that we tend to be more inspired and, and think more clearly and we're more creative. We have we naturally have this critical voice in our heads that does not inspire as much creativity, does not inspire as much inspiration and encouragement. So let's define what self-compassion is. I think the simplest way to think about it is to um it's it's being a friend to yourself and and when i say a friend i mean i mean the loving friend your most loving and encouraging and supportive friend but that supportive friend also um, will tell you the truth as they see it so self-compassion is not about acting like everything is going perfectly when it isn't it is actually sometimes about acknowledging hey i'm struggling right now but instead of saying oh i shouldn't be struggling because i should be better than that it's saying i'm struggling um and this struggle is real and the pain of that struggle is real and it's okay to struggle because struggling is human um and what do people who are struggling need they need encouragement they need support they need rest and then it's about giving myself those things right encouragement support and rest so it's about changing the voice in my head from one that is uh almost angry with me to one that loves me and that loving voice in my head is not one that lets me off the hook right it doesn't say like you you can do whatever you want and it will be great it says um, how do we take better care of ourselves uh, and how do we love on ourselves more so that we have the creative energy that we need to, to do better work. Um, so I would think of being self-compassionate as being more friendly to, to myself. And I, I still have a critical voice in my head, which I think is very, very, very important to point out. It's not, like the, it's not like I've killed the critical voice in my head. I don't intend to kill it. I intend to love it. So these days when my critical voice pops up, I have this self-compassionate voice that I can communicate with my critical voice. So my critical voice comes up and says that wasn't good enough. And uh, what I know it's trying to say is that it's scared, right? Anytime my critical voice pops up, it's because it's scared. So my compassionate voice will come and speak to it and say like, hey, tell me tell me what you're afraid of. Um, And you're not alone. And I bet we can do this together. So instead of having one voice that's very scared in my head, I now have this calmer voice that can communicate with it and I can calm myself down. And I don't think that's weird at all. Like these voices are in our heads, whether we acknowledge them or not. Like they're just different perspectives in our heads. So my co- critical voice will still pop up. And and if I've gotten less sleep or if I'm not eating well or I'm not exercising well, my critical voice gets louder. But the more I sleep and eat and exercise, my critical voice gets a little calmer and then I can communicate with my compassionate voice. So it's about kind of cultivating uh, these voices in my head and um, yeah, I, I hope that helps. I have a couple re- resources I'd recommend if people want to study self-compassion for themselves, but we can get to that later. Thank you. Second question is,
0: how can self-compassion help you know college students cope with stress and challenges?
1: Yeah, so let, let's define self-compassion again, but maybe differently to, to see if it's a, be, a fresher perspective. Um, if uh, life is stressful and being a human is stressful. And I think when we're not compassionate to ourselves, we become unaccepting of, of the parts of ourselves that we think are below average or average. You know, it's it's always easy to be pumped about the parts of ourselves that are above average when we're like, hey, I'm really good at that, you know, and be proud of that. But if somebody's really self-critical, then anything part of them that is average or below average, they'll be very harsh to those parts of themselves. A self-compassionate person will be accepting of things that they struggle with, that they're below average at. They'll be accepting of things that they're average at and they'll be accepting of things that they're above average at. And acceptance does not mean that we might not want to improve in these areas. We, we probably do want to improve in these areas, but a compassionate person won't uh, be ashamed of where they are because it's where they are. You know, like if I'm struggling with patience, I can be ashamed of it and mad at myself, or I can say, I'm struggling with patience, you know, and, 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 and I'd like to struggle with patience less, um, but right now I'm struggling with it because that's where I am. And then I can say, what do I want to do differently? And i might say hey i may be working too hard or i'm not getting enough sleep and i can eat, i can honestly evaluate the, what i'm doing with my life and say like what what might i change so that so that my position might change right um so instead of being mad at where i am i just i'd see where i am and how is that helpful for a college student well they're going to be below average and average and above average just like me right and so if they can look honestly at the places where they're struggling and just honestly say i'm struggling instead of acting like they're not or thinking that they shouldn't be struggling, which I think is very common. People are like, I should be better at that. I should be better at this. I should be better at that. And that kind of talk, I, I find to be very defeating and deflating because according to who, right? According to who should I? I'm not better at it, right? Like, and, it, I, I, and, and that's just where I am and that's okay. So I think just, it, it, it helped, I, if a college student were to embrace self-compassion, I think they'll become more accepting of the fact that they're human so by definition, they're going to struggle with stuff, and they're going to excel at stuff. And every human struggles with stuff, sells at stuff, even if they don't admit it. And I want to be one that admits it because I think that gives other people power to admit it too. Um, and then if I come across a struggle, I don't have to be mad at myself for that. I can say that's normal because every human struggles, right? And I just have a I have a healthier and I think saner lens um on on the human experience i think it is actually in, insane i think it's actually unhealthy to believe that i should just be good at everything and if i'm not good at everything then i'm bad at everything right that's what we call perfectionism and i do not appreciate perfectionism i was a perfectionist for most of my life and now i'm a recovering perfectionist i don't want to do it anymore right i just want to be a human somebody who who is comfortable struggling com- somebody who's comfortable uh, doing things uh, that you know that work and that that are that doing things are good at, and both right. Like I just I want to embrace the whole human experience. So if I'm a college student um, and I have a highly critical voice, I'm probably not embracing the whole human experience. I'm probably wanting myself to be something that is different than being human. And I think it's very helpful to actually be what we are, which are humans. You know, like and we and, and humans struggle and humans thrive and humans have joy, humans have pain. Um, and humans are greedy, and humans are generous, and I'm all of it. You know, like I can be everything. I can be angry, um, I can be uh, spiteful, but I can also be kind and loving, right? It just really depends what, what I'm where I am that day or what's going on in my life. Um, and when I'm spiteful, uh, it's not like I love it, but it's a part of the human experience, right? There's a reason that we have a word for it, well, it's because it's in all of us. So I think just being more accepting of, of who I am uh, is in- incredibly important and I think it would help somebody who's going through the college experience because they're human whether they like it or not you know so I, I want to embrace that thank you perfect next question is how
0: can college students practice self compassion on uh, a daily basis
1: so if I'm struggling maybe I'm a college student and I feel sad um, if I'm not practicing self-compassion I might tell myself I shouldn't feel sad If I'm practicing self-compassion, I acknowledge that I'm feeling sad. And then I say, what might help? What might I recommend a friend do if they feel sad? And I might tell them, you know, hey, spend more time with friends. You know, get out of your room. Maybe go take a walk or maybe find a therapist or a counselor or a a support group to talk to about your sadness. You know, communicate about it. Um, So somebody who is practicing self-compassion is seeing where they are and um on, and looking at it honestly and saying, "What do I do next?" And often what you do what we need to do next is seek help. Uh, you know, seek support. Nobody does this alone. nobody lives a rich and full life alone. Um, we we live rich and full lives by helping one another. Um, and it's okay to need help. It's okay to not feel okay. Um, and if we don't acknowledge that, we're gonna get very sick, right? Um, so I think another cool thing about self-compassion is if I'm excited about something, I can love myself through that, you know. I don't have to. I don't have to deny that because sometimes excitement is scary, right? Excitement is vulnerable. If I tell you I'm excited about something, I'm being vulnerable because I'm telling you something emotionally uh, pumps me up, right? Uh, and that that exposes a part of my soul, it exposes a part of my heart to you, and that might be a little scary for me. But uh, in order to live a rich life, I need to be comfortable. Both um, learning, I need to get more. I would like to be more comfortable sharing when I'm not when I'm struggling and also when I'm thriving and when I'm excited and also when I'm, you know, scared. Um, So I think what self-compassion does is opens up our ability to say where we are, uh, wherever we are. And that can be very helpful for anybody, college students or not. Um, But I think what it will allow us to do is seek help sooner and talk about things sooner and maybe even write about things sooner. Like if, if, if you want to go to therapy, uh, and you're listening to this, and you want to go to therapy, but maybe you're nervous about talking to somebody. Self-compassion can encourage us to just write down how we're how we're thinking and feeling. It can it can encourage us to talk about it, and maybe um, in our voice recorder that we all have on our phones, and just get it out. And when it's out of our heads, it can it can feel less scary. It can immediately feel like you know we're less intimidated by where we are. Um, so I, I hope those are some some Thank you. Yeah, this is perfect. Uh, um...
0: We'll talk about tips and resource right now. So can you hear, you know, any tips or resources for college students who want to learn more about self-compassions?
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's an awesome book by a woman named Kristen Neff. Uh, and She is a, the, the leading researcher on self-compassion. It's K-R-I-S-T-I-N space N-E-F-F. Um, and she wrote a book called Self-Compassion, S-E-L-F dash. C O M P A S S I O N Self Compassion. Self-compassion. Great book. Um, and it set on my sh- I bought it and it sat on my shelf for a while and I didn't read it right away. I think I was a little intimidated by it. You know, like I was a little nervous uh, that it might actually have answers that I needed, but then maybe I wasn't ready for. Um, and so it took me like two or three years three two or three years to pick it up. And when I did pick it up, I was like, oh my gosh, this has been sitting on my shelf for so long. And it is just this guidebook that helps me. That helped me understand much of what I've already shared, which is that you know, self criticism, while I thought it was helping me, it was hurting me as much as it was helping, if not more, um, and that I could help myself without so much of the hurt by uh, by practicing self compassion. Kristen Neff is a very very solid writer, but she also goes on a lot of podcasts. So maybe if you don't want to buy the book, you know, look up, look up her podcast interviews with other people and just listen to one, um, because she is. She is the first person to scientifically study self-compassion's effect on on humans. Um, and and to see, you know, see how it helps. So I I'd say that, that is that is a major resource. Another one is nonviolent communication, which is a book by Marshall Rosenberg. Um, nonviolent is one word. Uh, and there's a third edition. It's called A Language of Life, Nonviolent Communication, a Language of Life. And that book challenged me in a big way about how I treat myself and how I treat other people but also just made me a, a more consistently loving and supportive and encouraging friend and you know friend to myself so I I, I would uh, I would look into both of those uh, absolutely for sure
0: thank you very good tips. Um, next question is in what ways do you think self-compassion
1: is different from self-pity or self-indulgence Good question thank you for asking that. I think sometimes people hear about self compassion and they think it is like self pity or they think it is if they if they practice self compassion, they'll become over you know, too indulgent in their own needs. Like, hey, I'm not feeling good today, so I'm just gonna lay down and I'm just gonna lay down forever, right? And like be overly indulgent, kinda not move. I find that to be kind of uh it doesn't happen very much. I think it's something that scares people. Um, but as soon as they begin to practice self compassion, they start to realize that it tends to not lead to those things. And again, Kristen Neff Talks about this directly in her book that, you know, people will worry about self-pity. They'll worry about self-indulgence, but truly practicing self-compassion, what it is, not what we think it is, right? Because I think some people hear self-compassion and they think it's something different than what it is. Being a friend to oneself, um, a good friend would not allow for overindulgence, right? They wouldn't be like, hey, um, you know, don't do anything and everything will get better. Uh, sometimes they might just say, hey, if you need a couple of days of sleep, take a couple of days of sleep. Um, you know, listen to your body. Uh, but when we do listen to our bodies, what we tend to do is get get more energy. We tend to not feel down and like self pitying or self indulgent. We tend to actually feel healthy. Therefore, we can go out in the world and um, you know if we want to, we can we can accomplish things. Not that that is the end all be all of a human, and it, it is not. Um, but if that's what you're looking to do in college, which makes a lot of sense to me, um, truly being self compassionate has a very low chance of turning somebody into self indulgence or or self pitying. Um, self pitying, you know, I, I think for me would be Saying here's where I am, and that is that is sad and too bad, and the world sucks because this is where I am. Um, it's okay to say, hey, the world is tough. The world is tough, and it's and 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 listen, I am a I am a white man. So if, if the world's tough for anybody, it's probably not me, right? The, the 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 world has been the wind is at my back in so many areas of life that it's unfathomable for me to even imagine it not being at my back in this way. And why do I say that? Is I'm I'm not suggesting that the world is equally painful for everybody, right? But we all have our own pain in our own experiences with frustration and sadness. And if I'm self-pitying, I might say, well, well, too bad for me. And I'll just stay here and and be, you know, and be sad about it forever. Whereas a self-compassionate person would say, I am definitely sad about how hard the world is. I'm definitely scared of how chaotic the world is. I'm definitely nervous that if I try, it might not work. Um, but I also understand that if it doesn't work, I know how to love myself through that. Right. And if I do get scared, I know how to um, soothe myself through that. And those are the tools that self compassion brings to us: is the ability to self soothe and self regulate in spite of the world's, you know, difficulties. Generally and ideally, we, you know, ideally we're not alone in our so- in our soothing. We have friends to help us soothe. We have we have family to help us soothe. Um, we have a community that, that that cares about us as well. So I don't think anybody should do this alone. But self compassion can help us when we do feel alone. Um, and then if we combine that with support of friends or family or loved ones, that's even better by a mile, you know. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, Daniel, but but I hope I did. And let me know if I didn't.
0: It is. You answered the question perfectly. Thank you. Next uh, question is, how can college students or anyone balance the importance of self-compassion with the need to hold themselves accountable for their actions? And
1: Yeah. Yeah. So self 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 compassion and people accept where they are. I'm going to say that again. They accept where they are. So if uh, if a week ago um, I told myself I was going to get that paper done, and and then that day I said, uh, not today. I'm not feeling up to it. And then the next day I said that again, and I kept saying that again and again and again. And now it's a week later, and I haven't I haven't gotten that paper done. Um, that might make me nervous about my, holding myself accountable, and I might say, hey, the last seven days. I have told myself not today, um, and and I think at some point I'm going to have to say today's the day, right? Because I got to get this done, um, and because I believe in myself and love myself, I understand why I might have have waited because I was nervous about getting started. But then today I say let's just let's just write one paragraph, and and if I get through one paragraph, uh, then that's a victory. And I highly uh, imagine that somebody with that headspace does more than one paragraph today. But a self-compassionate person helps themselves look honestly at their reaction day over day and be like, I keep saying the same thing, and it might be turning into an excuse. It doesn't make me bad or wrong or stupid or lazy. It just is, right? I just might be saying the same thing every day because I don't want to do this. Uh, And so how do I say something a little differently today um, that that, relieves my anxiety about the fact that I'm not getting this done? And how do I set a goal that I know I can crush, right? Because a lot of times we don't want to get started because... Um, we've set goals that are really big and they scare us. And big goal setting and vision can help. But if they're stopping us from even getting started, then they're becoming a hindrance, right? So how do I break up that big goal into smaller goals and just say, it's not about doing this perfectly. It's just about making some progress today. And I'm going to make progress on a paragraph or maybe two paragraphs. And if I make that much progress today, my day is solid. I did it. And that kind of momentum, you know, my, my... my best friend and, and a former business partner at Lessonly, Connor Burt, um, he is all about momentum. And momentum is like wind, wind at our backs. When we when 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 we do something well, it's easier to do the next thing well because we have this confidence, right? Um, so if we make goals uh, that are uh, that are thoughtful and that are like uh, the least we can do, like you know one paragraph today instead of the most we can do, um, that least we can do is attainable. So therefore, we're likely to go, okay, how about one more? How about one more paragraph or how about you know i'm using the analogy of we're writing a paper um but setting those kind of bite-sized goals is a generous way of you know easing ourselves into something and the more we ease ourselves into it the more momentum we pick up and if one day it feels like we've lost momentum well connor's question is always how do i get a little momentum back you know and then it's like okay i'm gonna write one more paragraph today or i'm gonna ask somebody to edit this because that'll be progress right they're, they're gonna push it forward and help me so Thinking in momentum is very helpful, and if I don't feel any momentum today, what is what is one small thing I can do to get a little bit of momentum? And then what's another small thing I can do to get a little more? You know, and if I lose all my momentum, what small thing I can do to get it back? Mm.
0: Love it, love it. Um, so before we go to the last questions, I have one more, which is: How can college students encourage and support each other in practicing self-compassion?
1: Yeah, I think our job, uh, I believe. Most of my life, I looked around me and I saw frantic people. I saw people who were not calm. And, and, and I was like, oh, all these people around me do not seem very calm. Maybe I should go try to calm them down. And, uh, and then I, w- I would go up to them and try to calm them down. And it took me many, many years to realize that I, I was also not calm. So I was this uncalm person trying to calm uh, uncalm people down, right? And a frantic person is probably not going to be able to calm another frantic person down. So it became clear to me that my job is to first work on calming myself. And that might be all I need to do to have a positive impact on the um, frantic people around me, right? Because if I work on calming myself, which is very difficult, maybe one of the most difficult things there is to do, and it's not something that you just get to be done with, right? I I didn't just one day be like, okay, now I'm calm and I'll never be uncalm again, right? Like, uh, it's a practice. I have to keep working on it. And my calmness could be here one day and gone the next. And that's OK, because I'm a human, right? I fluctuate. Um, but what it helped me realize when I realized I am not calm and I'm trying to make everybody else calm is first, I should work on my own calmness. Uh, so what I would recommend for college students who you know, want to encourage other people to be more self-compassionate is first practice self-compassion with yourself, right? Not because you want to convince anybody else to do it, because you believe first and foremost that helping yourself ultimately does help people around you. Because a calmer you makes a calmer world, right? if i calm myself the world is by definition calmer cuz there's one calmer person in it and if you do the same you are calming the world in the only way that we really can like i i do, i can i've tried to change people in my life i've never done it i've never i've never succeeded at trying to change somebody the way that i've changed somebody if i ever have is by influence right it's by them seeing something that i'm doing and going i like that and they then decide they want to make a change that looks more like something that I'm doing. I'm not telling them to, right? I'm not forcing it on them. We don't want things forced on us as people. Uh, there's, there's just we just don't. When we feel something forced on us, even if it's something that we ultimately could benefit from, we're like, no, stop. So you know, my recommendation uh, for anybody is instead of trying to fix you know somebody else, let's take a good hard look at where we struggle, at where, what makes, at where our sadness is, at where our anger is, at where our loneliness is, and see if we can soothe those parts of ourselves not alone right now without help now without counseling and support and, and and community and friends um and by doing that we are doing the work that the world needs because imagine everybody taking that approach and everybody just starts to get calmer and nobody's trying to fix anybody else we're just all doing the work right i don't believe that everybody has the same um the same fortune in being able to have practices stuff if i have no food to eat. It's very difficult uh, to, um, to have the presence of mind and the, the space uh, to be able to do these things. So I'm not suggesting, I think we should not judge anybody if they struggle to do this because we don't understand their circumstances and I'm sure their circumstances are very difficult. We should just focus on what are my circumstances? Where do I need help? Uh, if I struggle to, uh, to calm myself, it's not because I'm bad at this, it's because it's a practice and it might take more time than I, than I imagine it will. And so, so Daniel, what I will, last thing I'll say is, uh, I mean, I'll say more because I, I want I want to keep talking to you. But last thing I'll say on that is that um, being pract- practicing things requires us uh, often leads us to think that we should be good at something in a certain period of time, right? A lot of us will tell ourselves, um, uh, "I should be good at this by by this date," and if I'm not good at this by this date, then I must be bad at it. And I think we need to be very uh, aware that, th- that we do that naturally and then and resist that urge to think that we know how long things take so let me give you an example um the guy who started amazon jeff bezos uh he i don't know if it's bezos or bezos i really don't care but he one time talked about a friend who was uh uh was trying to do a a, a perfect handstand. so this friend wanted to be able to do a handstand and stand on their hands without any assistance and that friend thought it was going to take them about i think six weeks is what he wrote Something like that, like six weeks of practicing every day, and then they'd be able to do a handstand. By the end of the six weeks, they were not even close to doing a handstand, and they thought, well, maybe I'm just bad at doing handstands. And then they uh, found out that somebody was out there in the world who could actually coach them on how to do a perfect handstand. And when they found that coach and they talked to that person, that person was like, six weeks is not nearly enough time to learn how to do a perfect handstand. It might take you six months. And so what does that story tell me? Well, it tells me that I do that all the time. It might not be with handstands, right? But it's other things that I think they, they should only take this long and they might actually take that long, right? They might take decades um, and I think they should take a year. They might take a week they might, I might think they should take a week and they actually should take three years because, or maybe there isn't a period of time that it takes. It's just about practicing it. You know, It's not about having this mark of being like, now I'm good enough. Um, it's about, hey, am I working toward that thing? And you know, do I see myself making progress? and every now and then i probably see myself getting worse at it when i stop practicing and that's okay um because that's the human experience right i get better at some things and then i maybe i'm not as good at them after a while and then i have to get, i have to practice them again um so what i'm getting at is like we need to be gentle with ourselves when it comes to the expectations we have for when things should work mm.
0: thank you that is per- perfect uh, so Any last thought, any closing thoughts or, you know, any
1: question that I should have asked that I did not? Yeah, I think the last thing I'll say on self-compassion is so many great uh, thinkers uh, from from, you know, Jesus Christ to the Buddha uh, to, you know, many psychiatrists uh, like like Carl Jung. uh, These people who have thought very deeply about the human experience, they seem to keep coming to the same conclusion, which is that we are highly critical creatures who, if we are lucky enough, can learn how to be more compassionate to ourselves and to others. And in doing so, we can bring a healthier world about. That the the criticism is not the path. Uh, It is always gonna be something that we carry with us that we need to learn to love. Um, But the most important uh, thing we can do is um, learn to be more compassionate to not only our self-critical voice, but to everybody around us. Um, So long way of me saying uh, that I think there's really something to this and I hope if you have heard this today, you think, all oh, that sounds soft," or maybe that's how you were not raised. That you think that, like, this isn't just coming from myself and Kristen Neff and a, and a few people who who just came to this conclusion. Some of the oldest texts, some of the oldest thoughts that exist in the human experience boil down to, "Let's be more compassionate." And that's not—I don't think that's a mistake or an accident or a fluke. I think it is the way. And uh, and I think our jobs are to go from critical people. Uh, most of the time, to compassionate people most of the time. We're always still going to have a little criticism in us, but if we can be more compassionate, holy moly, it matters. And so my the, the thing that, uh, it's not that you didn't ask anything, I just wanted to, to just repeat what I said, um, because I think a lot of people will hear about self-compassion and think it sounds weak or soft. And I, I would encourage them to think more deeply about that, maybe just give it a try. Um, and then, you know, in general, if you're uh, if you're attempting to get into the tech space, the best possible teammates are ones who are compassionate. They're not the ones who are critical of themselves because the ones who are incredibly critical of themselves tend to be more critical of others. Um, and, and they tend to also you know not take care of themselves very well because they're like, I need to do better, better, better all the time. And they, and they don't listen to their bodies and allow themselves to rest. So just maybe the, the last thing is rest matters. And um, when you're young, you can get away with resting less. But at some point, I hope we learn to rest more, you know. Uh, so if you're, I didn't rest a lot in my early twenties, and I'm not telling you you should do something that I did not do. I'm saying eventually I had to learn to rest, and I am learning to rest because my body couldn't take the work, 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 work thing anymore. Um, and so yeah, just just over time, developing a capacity to rest and turn off. Uh, I think that makes the best teammates when the ones the ones who do that. They're not only doing one thing; they're doing. They're 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 stimulating themselves and they're resting. Then they're stimulating themselves and they're resting. You know, stress, rest, stress, rest. We need both. We are a big muscle, right? La- like last analogy. Let's say let us say I, I'm, I I I never exercise. Okay, I never lift a single weight. I never move. What happens to my muscles? They they wither away. I never use them. My muscles wither away. Let's say I exercise all the time. I just never stop. What happens to my muscles? They wither away. We've seen people overwork their muscles to the point that they, they break them. They break down. They they Their muscles stop working because they're working too hard. So what should we do? Well, we should exercise and then rest. And then exercise and then rest. And what happens to our muscles when we do that? They get bigger. You got it. You got it. Because we're, we're giving them, we're, we're, we're stimulating and then, then we we'll rest. And, and that is easy, easy to say and very hard to do. But I think it's an important thing to remember is that's how we grow. It's equal parts stress and rest.
0: Thank you, Max Yoder. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening to uh, this episode. I am Daniel Tang, the producer and the host. Amos Biong is the scriptwriter, And Elijah Mentren is the video editor. I'll see you guys again on next Wednesday. You're listening to Project Yellow Podcast.